coming up, why Russell talks hockey and growing up with famous parents, and then Taylor Sheridan tells us why he didn't trust any other director with his script for Wind River. I just couldn't trust that I would get that lucky a third time. But when you're playing junior hockey and you're 18 years old, and you want to get a scholarship, and like that's your life. Yeah. That's that's your life path. That's your life goal. That your friends do that. That's your world. I don't go into writing a, a screenplay with concerns about the audience I'm trying to reach or you know the expense or difficulty in making them. My dad always said like the one thing that he realized, and I've felt a little bit little bit of this with some of the stuff that I've done from people, is. What, well, what does the brain surgeon do when he's done brain surgery? He goes home and watches the TV. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a release there and there's an importance there, but it's not about me. Yeah. It's about bigger things than yourself. Hey, folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. Come on in, shut the door, don't let all the cold air out. Have a seat at the bar, maybe have a lemonade. Shake it up. It's delicious at this time of year. It's been a busy time around here. I just got back from the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. Now, if you don't know what the Just for Laughs Festival is, it's the biggest comedy festival in the world. There's hundreds of shows. It goes on for weeks. Uh, It's a fantastic event. And every year, I go and host onstage interviews with comedians and filmmakers and things. This year, I did a number of them, most notably, I guess, with Trevor Noah. Now, a year ago, I did one of these in Toronto with Trevor Noah, and we talked about growing up in South Africa, getting the Daily Show. He was just writing his book, which is called Trevor Noah, Born a Crime, Stories from a South African Childhood. It was fascinating stuff, but I wanted to do something a little different this time, so we're backstage. He's texting, I'm kind of hanging out, reading my notes and things. And I said to him, you know what, here's what I think we'll do. And I started to run down things. And he said, don't, don't tell me, I want everything to be a surprise out there. So everything that came out of my mouth was as much a surprise to the, him as it was to the audience. Sometimes it even surprised myself with some of the questions that came out of my mouth. But he handled it all so beautifully. Every word that comes out of this guy's mouth is like poetry laced with philosophy. He is a thinker. He's very funny, but he just captivated this audience. There were probably eight, 900 people there, uh, and he just absolutely captivated them. We talked about Donald Trump, and instead of attacking Trump, as I think you would expect the host of The Daily Show to do, he said things like, there are things to be angry about, there are reasons to mobilize, but some of this Donald Trump stuff, some of the stuff that he does, hey, just laugh at that. Now. You'll have to take my word for all of this because we didn't tape it. I can't bring you that interview here on the House of Krauss. It exists only in the memories of me and uh, the, the hundreds of people that were in the room. But it was fantastic stuff. You can read about it in The Hollywood Reporter if you want to dig a little deeper here. But fantastic stuff. This week on the show, we have more fantastic stuff. A little bit later on, Wyatt Russell will be here. Goon, the last of the Enforcers, will be available across Canada on Blu-ray and on demand uh, in early September. So I thought I'd revisit a little bit of an interview I did with him a little while ago. Uh, We'll get to that in just a second. First up, though, I want to bring you Taylor Sheridan. 
Last year, Taylor Sheridan helped breathe new life into the Western genre with the script To Hell or High Water. It was a hot and sweaty West Texas crime drama that earned four Oscar nominations. Now, before that, he penned Sicario, the Emily Blunt Benicio del Toro drama about an idealistic FBI agent working with an elite task force to stem the flow of drugs between Mexico and the U.S. His new film, and the one that we're talking about here, is called Wind River, and it feels much different. It's another neo-Western, but it's a wintry murder mystery set on a First Nations reserve. He's an interesting guy. He's an actor. You would have seen him on Sons of Anarchy and loads of other stuff. He did guest spots on every television show imaginable. Uh, but he's really found his voice as a writer and now as a director. So we talked about Wind River. It's in theaters next week. It stars Elizabeth Olsen. It stars Jeremy Renner. Uh, it's got a tremendous cast. And it's one of those kind of edge-of-your-seat thrillers. Here's Taylor Sheridan on Wind River. Why this one as your debut? You know, it was a it was a, a subject matter. I I just I, I was worried that look I had been very lucky with Denny and David uh, directing Sicario and Hell or High Water, and I I just couldn't trust that I would get that lucky a third time. And with this one, um, because it's about such a sensitive topic, um, and I have a number of friends in Native in Indian Country. Uh, and I had to tell the story a certain way uh, to be respectful and to hopefully, um, you know, begin a dialogue that's not existent here. Um, the only way I could trust that it, it, that it was done the way I felt it needed to be done was to do it myself. How does this fit into Sicario and Hell or High Water? They, they feel like they are bonded somehow and it's more than just having been written by the same person what is it do you think that sort of connects them what's the tissue there well there, there's, there's two things there's an exploration of the modern American frontier there is uh, you know a real examination of uh, you know the consequences of that settlement and how much of these regions changed in a hundred years how much haven't they um, you know and and it and really exploring um, you know, the exploitation and the evolution of these areas. Uh, likewise, it's a study in, in, uh, in fathers managing grief uh, and, and, and moving on or overcoming or accepting perceived failures as fathers, um, which I had become a new father when I wrote these and obviously was terrified of the notion of failing you know, my child, and, and so, you know, what does a writer do? He imagines the worst in various forms and writes about it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that's really what, what I feel connects these, these three, is, um, is that very deeply personal character arc and then and in these regions. I don't want to give anything away, but... Something happens in the film that has also happened to your lead character's character, yeah. uh, Jeremy Renner's character. Why was it important for him to have the same experience of of a missing dead child? The character of Corey, his journey is, and, and he's on it when we meet him, is seeking a means to move on from a tragedy without ever getting closure mm -hmm. uh, and, and exploring how to do that. Um, and, and 
and recognizing his failures and recognizing, uh, you know, learning to forgive himself in a way, um, and uh, and you know, and accepting this kind of subject matter. Though the thing that I'm finding interesting about watching these as as a trio, then as a trilogy, um, is that you are unafraid to uh, be ambiguous in terms of. Uh, some of your endings, you are unafraid to take people on, you know, a, a look at grief. Um, these are might be difficult movies to get made these days. Does that ever enter your thought process, or are you just absolutely uh, writing the thing that moves you in the moment? The only thing I can do, and, and I think one of the the real challenges in, in our business is, um, you know. Uh, Obviously, a studio system uh, is trying to figure out what most people want to watch uh, and make a movie that appeals to most people. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to write a film that I want to go see uh, and assume that I'm not that unique about things that matter to me. Um, and that's, you know, so that's what I do. I can't, I, I, I don't go into writing a, a screenplay with concerns about the audience I'm trying to reach or you know, the expense or difficulty in making them. When I'm struck with something that, that I care about that matters to me uh, and I'm curious about uh, the way with which a character might deal with this issue or that issue, then I explore it. Um, and, you know, I, I have no regard for, for who's going to come and see it, and I can't, you know. Yeah, you can't think beyond that. Otherwise, I guess you second-guess yourself every step of the process. Yeah, and, and audiences are extremely intelligent, or, and and uh, and I think that there's they they want to be challenged intellectually and emotionally, um, and a lot of films don't do that today. They may challenge them visually, uh, but I I really think that um, playing with the structure of storytelling and 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 looking very deeply at at uh, you know, and very real issues and playing with the idea of who am I rooting for? Who is the hero? Um, uh, who's the protagonist? I, I think that those are very rich things to, you know, to explore and to play with. Well, they've worked for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it, yeah. it, it, it seems that for some reason people are in the last, you know, a couple of years, few years, sort of afraid of that. But I, I think with films like, you know, well, the, this trio of films in particular, uh, they've, you know, the, the, we don't know about Wind River yet. It hasn't been released, but uh, we're knocking wood that it's very successful as the other two were, you know, and that's got to be gratifying for you. It is. It, you know, when, when you tell a story that people enjoy, um, and, and of course, the, you know, the ultimate goal is to do what you said in the beginning, which is to make a movie that excites and then has you thinking a or two later. Um, uh, you know, I just, I think that's the holy grail of film, filmmaking. If I can do that, if I can, if I can excite and entertain and, and yet do something to ponder later, I've done my job. Let's talk a little bit about the casting, and uh, I'll get to Jeremy Renner and, and Elizabeth Olsen in a moment. I'm interested in your approach to casting the indigenous characters. Um, we have seen so often in film that indigenous peoples are frequently not played by indigenous actors. And I was 
gratified and, and pleased to see that in this film, uh, that that's not the case. So tell me a little bit about choosing Graham Greene and, and others. Well, I was a huge fan of Graham's forever, and, and to get the opportunity to work with him was great. Um, you know, to go find a lot of these younger actors is, was a bit of a challenge because they haven't had the opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it takes experience uh, to, you know, to, to foster a, a, you know, a talent pool that you can pull from. Um, and, and fortunately now there seems to be, uh, you know, uh, a lot of storytelling you know, revolving around um, Native American experience. And it, is, and it is developing some really, really talented young actors and actresses. And it's very gratifying to see. So... The, the pool is growing, you know, um, and and as it does, it will, you know, it will continue to. You know, that's the, the really interesting thing about my business is when there's a when there's an appetite for something, uh, then all of a sudden these kids who have that dream they can come out and and there's a reason to try it. There's no reason to if, you're not, if they're not making the movies that involve roles that you know you're right for, then why would you move to Hollywood or Toronto or wherever and you know, and risk everything when you when you're not going to have the opportunities. Um, it, it is. I'm do, I'm casting another project now uh, that has even more Native American roles, and um, and it's a challenge um, to find the actors. But it's also, you know, someone has to have had experience in that world to to authentically create a character um, that exists in it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. Uh, it's, a, it's a very deep pool of talent, uh, albeit it's not the largest pool, but it's growing, and it's really encouraging. And I'm guessing that some of the actors, I understand the, the woman that played Annie, uh, is, is uh, a non-actor. Is that true? Or um, when you, when you exactly. Yeah. She was literally, I believe, she, I can't remember if she was brought in as a stand-in or an extra. Um, and then uh, uh, I would say she's an actor. She acted in that scene. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, and I would love to find something uh, else for her to do because she, she was really, she was really good. <laughs> she was really good. Um, and I did that a couple times. We've just got a few minutes left. Uh, shooting this, I, I can't believe it was made in 30 days, for one thing. Also, at 11,000 feet. So that's got to provide challenge after challenge. What sort of things uh, were going on for you? I mean, it was it's an extremely difficult film to make. You know, the weather was one of the greatest challenges. Just moving around in snow, you know, we would... We would drive to a location where we shot most of the film, and then it was a, you know, it, it was a mile and a half snowmobile, snowmobile ride into the location. We had to use snowcats to drag things in. It, everything is slowed down in the snow. Um, you can't use alley tracks. It's, it's almost impossible to put up a tripod because as snow starts to, but when you're standing there, the camera will drop down. So we had to be very inventive. That's why there's so much handheld in it. Uh -huh. A lot of the movement shots were, we used a snowmobile as a camera truck um, for a number of shots. Um, it was uh, it's hard on the actors to be, um, it, you know, at that altitude and in those conditions. Um, so 
So it's uh, it's um, it's really <laughs> well. I'm guessing that's why. And I've read and, and correct me if this is wrong, but is was the shootout scene or or in particular Elizabeth Olsen scene shot in 15 minutes, sort of because of weather conditions? Uh, the standoff. The standoff was wow. Yeah, I think I shot that in 15 minutes. It was it was, um, and it was chaos. I mean, you know, every, every you know, it was chaos. It was very difficult. Um, yeah, there were there were, you know, 30 days. Is I I would have loved to have had another 30. Yeah, but but there's I think an energy that comes from very much so. Yeah, yeah, and when there's no time and there's no money. And, you know, whatever else, you have to figure it out. And, you know, I remember Terry Gilliam telling me one time when he was making the Holy Grail movie that he only had a million bucks to make the whole thing. And he wanted King Arthur and his men to come over the crest of a hill on horseback. But the horses were going to cost uh, 10 grand or 20 grand or something. He couldn't afford it. So he put them all on broomsticks and had someone walking behind them with the coconuts making the clomping sound. And he said, because I had no money, I made a scene that everybody remembers. Because if I'd had them on yeah. horseback, they would have come over horseback and it would have meant nothing. Everyone remembers that scene. If I'd had money, I would have been a shitty filmmaker, is his quote to me. I mean, I, there is some truth to that. There's some real truth to that. Um, it, it, it forces you to make decisions uh, very quickly that get to the very essence of why you're making, you know, distilling things down to, you know, it's it's purest form because you just don't have time. Um, it, it's uh, I think he's one hundred percent right. If I if I had had more time, a lot of the scenes that work really well probably wouldn't work at all. That was Taylor Sheridan talking about Wind River. It's in theaters right now. Now, there was a time when an interview with Wyatt Russell would have taken place in a locker room, not a plush downtown hotel suite. The Goon, Last of the Enforcers star, and that's coming to DVD and VOD and everything else in September, uh, not only plays a hockey player in the film, he was once a junior league goalie who says that his first vivid memory was getting a pair of skates when he was just three years old. He says hockey was my love and my passion. His promising athletic career was cut short by multiple concussions and an injury-plagued season, but the 33-year-old fell right back into rink life on his first day of shooting Goon. What was it like getting back on the ice? So you, fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was so... Well, it was... There was a moment where... Um, it was... I think it was the first thing I shot, or like one of the first things I shot where every time you go into a movie, you're kind of like, okay, the first scene right. that you're going to do is always like, all right, you know, the, the, you never, the movie's never shot, done until you start shooting. Right, yeah, yeah. So you never really know how it's going to go. Right. And uh, you're always trying to like, okay, this is my character, and you're kind of thought about it for a while and getting into character and that, that kind of stuff just before the shoot starts. And I sat down on this bus. We were supposed to be getting off of a bus after a game to meet, like, our family members or whatever. And I remember sitting down and being like, oh, like, I don't, this is what I did. Yeah. This yeah. is not, act. I don't, I mean, it's act, there's acting. I wasn't like that as a human being. But it was, 
it was like, oh, this is going to be, this is like, I'm, I've, I've done it. I've already done this. And I looked over to my left, and they started filling in the bus with players that would fill out the team. Right. And there was a guy right next to me, and I was like, Dylan? And, like, I'd played with him. He played on the team for a little while uh, in Bramp. I'd played with him a little bit. And I was like, oh, my, what? Like, no way. And it became, like, after that moment, it became, like, really easy and fun to slip back into, like, hockey yeah. terminal, hockey-ish terminology. It's a world. Yeah. And, uh, and then every day at lunch, we would play, uh, like, shinny. Right. And, and everybody would get out, and it was, like... I, I don't think I've ever had more like fun right. because it was my love. It's my pat. It was my passion. It was yeah. my love. It's what I wanted to do with my life. So it was it was so much fun that way. Easy to slip into. What did you learn from playing professional sports that bled over into your new job as an actor? I mean, you're from a showbiz family, so you know you you understood what that part of it was like but i imagine there's discipline there's whatever else that goes along with being a professional athlete that maybe slides in a little bit a, a lot because when we were when i was playing hockey anybody here knows that um it's sort of different in the states when you explain it because it's not part of culture yeah um but when you're playing junior hockey and you're 18 years old and you want to get a scholarship, and like that's your life. Yeah. That's that's yeah. your life path. That's your life goal. That your friends do that. That's your world. Yeah. So there's no other world that's that supplements that world, right. other than like working out. Your whole life revolves around it. And so we never talked about any. It wasn't part of my life. I only saw it or experienced it through osmosis. So I think you mean show business. Show business. Yeah, yeah. So the osmosis part of it, I think, was something that definitely just bled into. Yeah leading in into my my new world but the but the but more so the specifics of what i learned in terms of professionalism being on time yeah. uh that was one thing i'll never forget i was it was playing uh i was in college and i was playing uh it was my i don't know maybe my fifth practice or sixth practice and i was like five minutes early i was I was like two minutes early. I had to run across campus. It was a video session. My class just ended, sprinted, and I got there on time. Right. And I sat down, but everybody was already there. And my coach was like, hey, Russ, what time does a five o'clock meeting start? I was like, five, five o'clock, I don't know. And he's like, five minutes early is 10 minutes late. Right. And I was like, got it. Okay. And it was like, a th- it was a thing. Yeah. So that type of mentality I not everybody has to have that or it's not a prerequisite but it was something that helped me understand that this is a life anything you do in life whether you're going to be uh you know whatever you decide you're going to be yeah. that that type of professionalism is the only way I think that you can expect to succeed in something and uh and so that number one knowing your lines and knowing your role right. is something in a hockey team that's really important. Not knowing your lines, but knowing yeah, your role. Yeah, yeah. Knowing your lines too, I guess, in a different <laughs> way. Um, but, but that way where you're like, I know my role on the team. And I know that, that, that knowing my role and working that role is what the team needs to succeed. Because hockey is probably, in my opinion, the number one sport where 
the the team has to come together through the individuals knowing their role. Right. One person can't win a hockey game. It just doesn't work that way. One person can't win a chance. It has to be a team effort. Every great hockey team that's ever won a Stanley Cup has a great team. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't mean you have the best players. It just means you have the best, the the camaraderie, the locker room. Everything's fitting together. And that, to me, is something that I've wanted to bring into my into my acting life because on set, that type of uh, feeling I think certainly bleeds over to on camera. It's just the chemistry. And if you're in a good movie, that means you were good. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that the focus on how are we going to make this movie good? That doesn't mean that I ha- I'm going to give my. I think I should have all the lines. Right. It means that I think that my role has to fit into it this way, and that um, that's a big one. I mean, there's tons of of, of similarities that um, I feel like I brought into just also understanding what competition really is. Right. When there's a winner and a loser objectively hockey winner loser you get the w you get the loss that's it and and in 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 acting it's subjective so it's not that and that was something that i what benefited me too in early on in the auditioning process five or six years ago people sometimes tend to feel like i've won or lost the part it's like no that's not how it works that when you win or lose a game yeah. You win or lose a moment. You you don't win or lose the subjective conscience of who who's making the movie and what they think is good for. So that took a lot of pressure off of the, of those moments too, where I felt like I go in and you do it, and if you're the, if you're the guy, you're the guy, and if you're not, you're not. And it's a more fluid process that way. But t- I mean, there, I could go on forever. But there's a, there's a lot, you know. Well, it's interesting when I was watching this. The thing that you know you take away from the movie, what I took away from it anyway, and you know, I, I mean, it's. It's it's rude. It's raunchy. It's got his bloody. Yeah. It's all that stuff, right? But it's about love. It's about the love of the game. Yeah. It's about that. And the and the difference between the two enforcers, like the main two guys, you and and, and Sean, is that uh, Doug loves the game, and your character only likes to win. Right. And that's the difference, right, right. there. I think, and that sort of speaks to, I think, totally what you were just talking about the camaraderie. It's all got to be there, otherwise, yes. it's, it's never going to gel. Right. Totally. It's it's. That's a perfect. That's exactly it. I'm glad. I'm so happy you've, you felt that way because it, it's the, there's a there's a fine line between people in any sport who love the sport for what the sport gives to them. Yeah, yeah. And then and then there's a switch that happens sometimes when you start to feel the expectation of what other people are putting it on for, for you and not just the love of getting out there, tying up your skates, and going and having fun. Right. And Doug. I think represents from a fan perspective, and Jay got this because he loves hockey. To Jay is it's different for me and Jay because because I played it, yeah. and Jay views it as a from a fan from a fan perspective, like a mega fan, like a mega fan perspective. <laughs> that in this movie, I think benefits it because it's it's he gets what hockey gives to people, right. and that visceral outlet of like what it means and for uh, a player sometimes when you're in it you don't you're not thinking of it you're just going out there and doing it and for Anders Kane it was much more of the perspective that I think people have when they get jaded they have a lot of talent they they've had a lot of talent since they were kids and they've also had a lot of pressure put on since they were kids and and for a lot of people there's a breaking point and and the way that usually manifests itself is self-destructive behavior, yeah. 
um, even that, and they don't even know they're doing well, it. Well, and I think you see that though, like in all sorts of stuff, not only just in hunt, but in show, like in like kid Acting. actors and all. You Absolutely. know, like you see all that, right? Everything, every every profession where you where people view it as as larger than life. Right. When you start to believe that it's it is larger than life and you are larger than life is like where I feel like the downhill skid starts to slide for everybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you start to view yourself as more important than the world that's going on around you. Than the person sitting on the train next to you. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, you know, I won't get personal about this, but do you think you might have learned that from, your your parents have been famous forever Mm -hmm. and really famous. Yeah. Do you think you may have learned, because I've I've met both of them and the the cool thing about them is that, you know, uh, and I've spent a bit more time with your dad, but just so cool, like down to earth and just like you would never know that he's a legend. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. They're great. And we we never grew up that that way because they understood that perspective of going, Look, I, they they were lower middle class yeah. American families that lived in you know Maryland and Maine and Thousand Oaks. That they didn't like all of a sudden forget that. That's right. just not who they were as people. That's not who their families were. So we were never raised with the fact that like what this it this is. It's it's just entertainment. Yeah. It's fun. It's yeah. not. Sometimes certain things can culturally make a difference. Maybe. On like the smallest, tiniest, littlest, tiniest scale, yeah. but there, it's just a, it's just at the end of the day meant for you to go to the movie theaters and have a good two hours yeah. of your life, and and that's it. It's not really, it's not rocket science. <laughs> not curing cancer, yeah. but at the same time, my dad always said like the one thing that he realized, and I've felt a little bit, little bit of this with some of the stuff that I've done from people, is. What, well, what does the brain surgeon do when he's done brain surgery? He goes home and watches the TV. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a release there, and there's an importance there, but it's not about me. Yeah. It's about bigger things than yourself. And, and, and they, didn't for, they didn't forget that, and I think that they raised us with that idea. That was Wyatt Russell. Of course, he's the son of actors Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. But uh, check him out in Goon, Last of the Enforcers. It's coming out on DVD soon if you missed it in its theatrical run. It's good stuff. That's it for us at the House of Kraus. We're going to shut it down. We're going to crank up the air conditioning. You get too many people in here, it starts to get a little warm. We don't like that. We like it so that you can hang meat in the living room. That's what we like around here. So we're shutting it down for another week. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks to Taylor Sheridan. Thanks to Wyatt Russell. Most of all, though, thanks to you for coming by every single week. We put up a new show every week. Every Monday, you never know who's going to stop by for a visit. So come back and see us over and over again. I mean, maybe one of your favorite people will be here. 